Take a network break. Help yourself to an extra virtual donut if you get the munchies during this episode as we opine on this week's tech news. we got a bunch of stories, including multiple acquisitions, a very bad day for a LastPass employee, financial results, and more. Uh, if you like the network break, check out our other podcasts, including Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, Full Stack Journey, Kubernetes Unpacked, and Heavy Strategy. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversations about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all on the Packet Pushers Network at packetpushers.net. Uh, before we get into the news, we have an FU or a follow-up. Uh, last week we were talking about, or the week before, talking about a SaaS company that's doing cloud repatriation. Uh, and Steve Paluca wrote in to say, you know, you made it sound like they're going into their own data center. In fact, they're going to a colo. Uh, and he is arguing that repatriation is only when you move from a cloud vendor uh, to an on-prem data center, not to a colo. So getting into a, a sort of religious discussion here about what repatriation actually is. <laughs> Well, I, I would take umbrage, I suppose. Hi, Steve, by the way. Uh, good to hear from you again. He does write in regularly on the FU page. So he's talking about there's sort of like off-prem cloud, which is the ones that we know. It's off-prem. It's owned by somebody else and mm -hmm. you just rent it, right? Someone else's computers. But then you also have co-location of company hardware in someone else's data center. So you buy the hardware and you put it into a data center. I would argue that there's a in between those two steps is another one. So there's a fourth one, which is bare metal. So you can now go to a number of providers out there and they already have the servers in the racks ready to go. And you just go in and say, I want 10 servers of, you know, select from the list of available hardware. And then they have software tools that allow you to provision bare metal servers, bare metal storage, bare metal networking as such. And so there's actually four options, off-prem, bare metal, then you go to Colo, where you own it yourself, and then you go to an on-prem DC. And my point would be is um, that the choice of repatriation to on-prem to on or Colo or bare metal hosting will largely depend on well, what I see as random issues. One company will say, like, I don't have any CapEx money. Well, let's go and do bare metal hosting where we can go and rent mm -hmm. the servers and we don't have to go and find, you know, half a million or a million dollars to buy servers and then agree to a contract. Another one is if building an on-prem space takes too long, maybe you've got to put a building up, you've got to buy a diesel generator, you've got to get a tank in for diesel, for do UPS, then you've got to get, you know, bring in the circuits. You need to bring in enough bandwidth for an on-prem. takes a long time. Yep. Once you've got it, very yep. cheap to operate, but um, it takes too long. It takes months, if not more than a year to be able to get all those things and in place. And lots of CapEx. So that, and a lot of CapEx. So you might want to go to a Colo. I think Colos make good sense. They do all that difficult work around owning a data center, like, you know, taking the diesel and getting it polished every two years. You can't <laughs> just put diesel in a tank and let it sit there. It actually right. goes off. Uh, modern diesel, because there's a certain amount of uh, ethanol in there and so forth, their modern diesel's not like it was 20 years ago. It actually has to be taken out and then polished, which is where they what they call cleaning it. So if you've got a you know five thousand liter tank, getting five thousand liters worth of diesel polished and cleaned is uh, expensive. And you know during that time frame, your backup is not working and so forth and so on. So getting someone else to do that in a colo does make sense, and I would go with that. So my broad definition of on-prem includes bare metal, colo, and self-hosted. And the key here is that. Really, I think the unifying feature is that you operate the software operations that drive that cloud infrastructure and you aren't renting it from someone else. So that means that you have the Kubernetes, you have the all of that stuff, you know, the the provisioning, the the VMware, the API, the, the user authentication, all that stuff, you own it, you run that. Where the hardware is located, actually, I think in 2023, kind of ancillary, not 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 a core issue. 
Uh, yeah, I, I guess my dividing line is if the server dies, uh, am I getting the call or is somebody else getting the call? That's maybe where I would want to split my hairs. Um, but I, I, I do take Steve's point. There are different ways to parse this out. Uh, and if you want to be a purist, I guess you could say running your own data center is actually repatriation. But again, kind of a religious argument. And you can mm -hmm. pick up your flag and go stand on a hilltop and fight for whatever you like. Uh, we do appreciate the follow-up. <laughs> if you want to reach out with a comment <laughs> or a correction or whatever else, an observation, hit us up at packapushers.net slash FU. Thanks, Dave. Good to hear from you. All right, let's dive into the news. Uh, Mobile World Congress was last week. We got a couple of announcements coming out from Cisco. First, Cisco, Meraki, and T-Mobile are partnering on 5G gateways to provide WAN connectivity to branch and remote locations using mobile wireless. So if you've got a remote location, you don't want the hassle of provisioning wire broadband, you drop in a Meraki MG51 or MG51E, and you get 5G fixed wireless connections from T-Mobile. Well, the next two articles will sort of suggest how overwhelming, underwhelming I found MWC mm. this year. Uh, this is about Meraki basically adding 5G to a number of their mm -hmm. edge devices so that instead of just relying on WAN connections to an Ethernet sort of a backhaul, you can now connect to a 3G, 4G backhaul. And in this particular commit, uh, press release, they're, they're partnering with T-Mobile to, unsurprisingly, sell T-Mobile's 5G. So you can now go and buy mobile home broadband and, and connect to that as if it's like instead of getting a wired connection, which is becoming for certain jurisdictions and for certain countries and for certain use cases works pretty well. I use sometimes use a uh, fixed broadband, a 5G broadband, and mm -hmm. it works pretty well. But it's not simple. You really want an external antenna. My biggest complaint with using 5G WAN at this point is that fitting an external antenna to get a good, strong signal, stable, reliable signal is actually incredibly difficult because most of them don't include external ports for <laughs> external 5G antennas. So... Um, turns out you can buy these though quite cheaply. You can buy them for about 150 bucks from companies like TP-Link and Microtech make a very good one. So if this is a totally new, like if this is Meraki announcing 5G, and I'm not sure it is, I don't think it is, then Meraki is a long way behind other SD-WAN products who've had 5G in their edge gear for years, I think. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure because there's a separate press release that actually came out, I think, a week before MWC announcing just general 5G gateway capability in Meraki, not tied to any specific uh, mobile provider. Uh, and if you buy one of those, you can use any mobile provider you like. I think this uh, MWC partnership is just uh, T-Mobile and Cisco wanting to get together to, to make some news, which they did. Yeah, and that's a highlight for MWC this year. Then. Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, moving on, also at Mobile World Congress, Cisco announced it was partnering with Mercedes-Benz to put WebEx into the Mercedes E-Class vehicles, and now you can hold WebEx meetings and calls in your Mercedes. This really feels like there's somebody inside Cisco who likes the Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> and I guess and likes to take calls while they're driving they... to and fro. <laughs> yeah, it really feels rather niche, uh, feels rather insignificant. Um, I don't really want to have to go and buy one specific model of one specific brand of car to have WebEx as a native app. I'd much rather see WebEx work on Apple CarPlay or Android and not have to hassle with sort of dealing with the different vendor. Like if you've got a car with a modern dash console, that's using some sort of, you know, in-car experience, um, then I would 
you know, maybe you, you're into that if you like that particular brand of car and their interface. But I think most people would rather use their Apple or their Android phones to do that. And this is not really a big deal. It seems a bit of a stretch to make a, you know, go to a big conference and this is one of your premium announcements. I guess it's one of those things where, you know, Mercedes has a little glamour to it. And so it gets you a little bit of ooh-ah when you're up on the stage announcing it. Uh, but people have already been taking phone meetings from cars mm. for ages. I think it's inevitable that this would move from the phone to the dash. Uh, and I guess, you know, that's potentially safer. That's a good thing. Uh, speaking of safety, they do mm. have some features in there where the meetings are audio only while the car is moving. Uh, it's not until you park that you could do video or share content or get transcriptions or use emojis on those WebEx meetings. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's all nice, yes. but, you know, <laughs> that just means people won't use it. Uh, yeah. I, I The thing that strikes me is I, I feel like I remember when there used to be places where I, I couldn't be at work, like an airplane or a car, and now there are no yeah. excuses for not being available and productive everywhere all the time. So thanks. Which is, you know, for a certain type of person, you'd I be guess. <laughs> I guess. This was the person that would have had the car phone installed like this, back in the 80s because yeah. they were important. Yeah, this really does feel like a big company getting together with a big company and saying, we need to do yeah. something. We need to, we need to, <laughs> and uh, stretching around and going like, let's, well, you know, we've got this sitting in the back drawer. Why don't we just, and it's like, okay, well, that'll do. We can bring that too. That really doesn't feel like it. If you love WebEx and you love your Mercedes E-Class, then this is the release for you. I think that's a very small Venn diagram. But That's a pretty small <laughs> Venn diagram. <laughs> that Venn diagram has not got a lot of people. All right. Uh, moving on, one more Cisco announcement. They have announced their intent to acquire uh, Valtix. This is a multi-cloud network security company. Cisco did not disclose how much it paid. Valtix provides a cloud firewall, IPS IDS, egress filtering, and a cloud web app firewall. And it runs across the four major U.S. public clouds, AWS, Azure, Google, and Oracle. Uh, another multi-cloud security company getting acquired. You would think that a startup industry exists to do this and then to sell them off to somebody else, anyone. Because as we've talked before, is that a lot of startups are starting to get cash-strapped and they're being told by their founders to uh, slow down the cash burn and to control themselves a lot better. So maybe this is what I see happening here is Valtix took a look at the runway, took a look at what business they've got. Um, I believe the founding team have already got very strong Cisco backgrounds and have been experienced in the Cisco spin-out, spin-in model. So they actually know how to go out and build a product and then they know all the people inside of Cisco that they have to go and talk to to get bored. I I don't know. I just can't shake the feeling here, Drew, that this is like an acquisition. Cisco got rid of 10,000 people just before December and somewhere inside Cisco somebody says, I need more headcount, but I can't hire anyone, so I'll just buy someone. So uh, Valtex was founded in 2018. They raised $26.5 million, uh, but Cisco, and Cisco was already an investor in the company, so they had kept an eye on it. And as you noted, uh, three of the founders also have Cisco backgrounds, including uh, the Valtex CEO, Vishal Jain, who did stints at Andiamo and Insiemi, which are also well-known Cisco acquisitions. So I think this was sort of probably in the works from the outset. Mm. Yeah, it does feel like it. Doesn't, but it doesn't feel significant. Like, this isn't big money. Cisco didn't disclose it, so it's not material yep. to their announcement, you know, to their yep. financials. And honestly, at this point in the game, if you don't have a multi-cloud security product that's already covering the major public clouds, what have you got? This doesn't feel, I want to say that Cisco's bought a couple of companies in this space, and now they're buying another one. Does that suggest that the other ones didn't make it, or Cisco wasn't able to incorporate them, or... Did they go on to some other business unit or, you know, it's very confusing. Yeah, it's hard to keep track of Cisco's ever burgeoning portfolio. I would presume they had virtual instances of their own security capabilities that you could run across individual clouds. But I think having a common security operation model across multiple public clouds, including visibility into traffic, uh, is a good story to tell customers. Mm. And Cisco, you know, kind of wraps up that whole space with this one acquisition. So 
No, I'm going with headcount. Get around the hiring. <laughs> you could be, there could be multiple avenues here, yes. <laughs> All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it. Uh, we'll get back to some other acquisitions further down. But first, the White House has released its national cybersecurity strategy. It's a long document. Uh, one of the things that jumped out at me is a uh, section on shifting liability for insecure software products and services to the vendors. I was very happy to see that in the document. However, it's going to require an act of legislation to happen, so who knows? But the fact that it's being talked about, I think represents a significant shift in governments and uh, companies being very frustrated with getting shoddy or insecure products from mm. vendors and being like, why can't we do something about this? Well, we talked about this quite often, the idea that there is no point in doing any security because there's no consequences attached for, to it. For somebody selling you something, yes, they don't necessarily have to secure that yes, product. Right. Yes, And so, in fact, the licensing terms specifically exclude any warranty of any product or features that will, and whether they work under any circumstances. So when you actually, you know, start to use a product, you actually agree to a license. It's called a shrink wrap license. And the any software that is sold to you it's got zero guarantees. It's one of the very few industries in the world which actually get to sell you a lemon and get away with it. You've actually got very few grounds on which to sue a company for a product that doesn't work when you bought it. That's just regarded as part of software. Can you imagine that in any other right. part of the industry? So I think what the US government is heading towards here is saying, look, a lot of IT is now part of our critical infrastructure. It's part of uh, our everyday um, we are moving into a, a more hostile geopolitical environment. Obviously, the US and China relations have gone are now in a different situation. There's obviously the troubles going on in where the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and there's a whole lot of malware and uh, cyber attacks going on in and outside, and some of them are spilling outside of the, the theater into the wider space. There's some rumors sort of saying that, you know, some of the accidents that have happened in America recently might have been the result of Russian activity gone wrong or even deliberate to sort of get back at the Americans. We don't know. There's no way to attribute it at this point in time. Um, but let's take a look at, you know, Microsoft Office is so insecure, it's so horrible that Microsoft is now selling its own security product to defend customers from its own product. Like Microsoft Defender is a product sold to protect you from Microsoft, which is insane. How can that possibly be? Sell the problem, um, sell the solution. It's a is. classic, it's a classic scheme. That's right. It's like get, let's get back to the 1920s <laughs> right. sort of thing. So really, the only way out of this is to say these companies have some responsibility to make their products reasonably secure and reasonably safe. Now, exactly how you put that in legislation. <laughs> It's going to be tough. It's going to be very tough. It's going to be tough. And like we've talked before about how governments move slowly, but inevitably, and when they do, they make, you know, any sort of legislation that happens at that sort of scale has the the problem of it or will also have some sort of unintended consequences. You know, there will be companies who will be kicked out. Venture capital become much more complex when they have quality, you know, obligations. Yes. You know, can you imagine a venture capital company instead of just, three kids in a, in a bathroom, you know, <laughs> with a couple of beers whipping up a startup and then saying we've got a business-grade product ready to go, well, that'll actually have to stop because they'll have to have QA, they'll have to meet certain mm-hmm, testing Potentially, yeah. So a whole bunch of impacts here, but ultimately I think we're getting to the situation where this is necessary. If you look back at bridge building, for example, mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. in the early days, they used to sit there and go like, that looks about right. <laughs> you put a thumb up and sketch it out. And <laughs> so normally, more or, or less straight, I think we're good for the day. Yeah. 
Yeah, and at the end of the day, we do use a lot of science now. They look at soil and go like, well, mm-hmm. if you want, you know, the soil can be calculated to be this strong and have this shear yep. and this, you know, and science is in there. So that's where I think where we're headed is in that sort of direction of some reasonable expectation of quality and functionality. I think it's uh, much needed. I agree The trying to get this into legislation will be complicated, but I do think it's a necessary step, even as a warning shot across the bow of the major uh, software and hardware providers that, hey, we're sick of this. Uh, you guys need to get your act together, I think is a good thing. Uh, the other thought that occurred to me is I could imagine thousands of lobbyists like lemurs poking their heads up out of their holes like, oh, I sense money coming my way. This will be fantastic. <laughs> it's going to be a banner year. <laughs> Yeah, because customers don't want to take responsibility for doing it themselves. So you go and hire a consultant to blame. Uh, sorry to help you. Help you. Yes. All right. Uh, moving on. Uh, the storage standards body, SNIA, has released a new specification for data acceleration for a memory to memory data mover. And Greg, you've got some thoughts on this. Yeah, this was kind of interesting because we've one of the issues that we've seen at high performance computing and AI and ML and all that sort of stuff is there's now a bottleneck around storage, moving data in and out of the model. Now, obviously, networking is a part of that, but to some extent that's being solved by through the use of DPU. So there's a future plan coming through where we can accelerate the I.O. And then on the motherboards themselves, we're seeing much more improvement in terms of things like CXL and PCIe and various sorts of high-speed interconnects that will allow data to move around inside the motherboard in between GPUs in a cluster. So we're seeing servers now with eight daughter boards of uh, GPUs and often up to something like, you know, 1,024 or 2,048 virtual GPUs inside of a a single chassis. So moving data between those GPUs becomes a massive problem. So in this case, uh, storage SNIA is a weird sort of a a standards body, which is it's sort of a non-specific standards organizations. And it's basically where a group of vendors agree on the way forward. And the storage industry is notorious for not being very standardized or not being the same. They'll tend to stick stick with a standard that they developed 30 years ago and hold onto it until the bitter bloody end when somebody kicks them out of there out of the, the things for about it. But in this case, they seem to be getting ahead of the curve a little bit, realizing that there is a demand. There's actually a new market. You're not just selling into the mm-hmm. same old, old market. Um, and the old idea is that you're really doing memory to memory transfer. So if you've got a piece of data in this server and you want to do something with it, you want to move it to that server over there so it can work with it. So it's going back to the old idea of DMA, which was a big feature in InfiniBand and MPI interfaces and also useful for storage arrays because if you can move it to the directly to the memory array of your storage controller, you can then write it out to disk at great speed. So I want to give thanks to Stephen Foskett, particularly for his advice on this because he is a storage expert. And he said, uh, it's an offshoot of the development work going into CXL and disaggregated compute. Like most CNIA, SNIA standards, it's likely driven by a few manufacturers who needed to make it their products function in this new infrastructure with many-to-many PCIe fabrics and similar tech. Think of it as next-gen DMA, enabling off your offload engines not to have to interrupt the CPU or XPO proce- XPU processing. So where I would have seen this as a DPU technology, he's actually suggesting it's a uh, software functionality to move memory to memory using whatever's under there. Right. It's worth reading, basically, because it's a very interesting drive for uh, enterprise data centers, I think. Yeah, link in the show notes if you want to check it out. Uh, we will move on. IBM has announced the acquisition of DNS provider NS1 for an undisclosed amount. Uh, NS1 also owned Netbox, but that's being spun out as a separate company. Yeah, not much to say here, except that NS1 is a managed DNS provider. I think they were one of the first to market, if my memory serves me correct back in the days when DNS wasn't really a thing. Um, they're very established in a lot of large companies and they've really just worked on scaling and stability. It's not, seems to be very limited just to manage DNS. No DNS firewalling, no filtering, but they do operate in China and they do operate 
traffic steering, which is a very simple, very basic service, except for the China bit. That's quite a quite a success factor. Um, but for people who use Netbox as a source of truth in their networks, you'll be pleasantly surprised to hear that it's being spun out of NS1 as a separate company or a separate entity, and it's now going to be an open source com- company doing commercial activities. So it will continue to operate as an open source project. So that's good to hear because Netbox has been quite popular for a while. And I think people who are using it will be pleased to know that it's not going to go sink down with the ship inside of it. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. You Sorry, did. did you I say did, that you know? <laughs> <laughs> Like it's a perfect acquisition for IBM. Lots and lots of big customers use this product. You know, probably a large number of IBM's portfolio customers are actually inside. They're using this product. So why not own it, I suppose? And That's also works. what I was assuming, that this was a stable, sticky business and IBM can just climb it on to the rest of their stable, sticky businesses and because uh, otherwise it doesn't seem like it has a natural home inside the company, but that's fine, I guess. No, IBM's bought those sorts of products all the time. It's uh, You almost feel like one of their biggest customers said, I really need you to buy this company. And <laughs> yeah, like, sure. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you know what I mean? There's a bit of numbers going on inside and they go like, all right, uh, it's not a bad fit, yes. you know? Yeah, we'll get it. <laughs> so. All right, link in the show notes to check it out. Uh, moving on, Meta has announced a large language model or LLM that it claims can run on a single GPU while outperforming OpenAI's chat GPT-3 on several benchmarks. Uh, the idea is that you could run an LLM on a PC and have onboard capabilities like answering questions, understanding language, or reading comprehension. And this is according to an article in Ars Technica. Yeah, this one got around the internet. Uh, I haven't talked a lot about AI here. Uh, I did recently over on episode 42 of Heavy Strategy, Jonah and I dealt, dived deeply into chat GPT and its impact on enterprise IT, if you want to go and listen to that. Um, but the the key thing here is that there's two key parts to the chat GPT model. One is a large language model, which is, takes your query that you offer it in you know whatever language you're using, mostly English, and then um, adapts that to then go and query the model. And OpenAI generates the models from its database, and then it has to generate its own large language model to adapt the query to extract data from the model. Two things that that's a very loose description. What uh, Meta is saying here is that if you're very careful with your data set for your large language model, you can reduce it from, say, something like what's behind JetGPT, which is 175 billion parameters. You can reduce it down to somewhere in the order of 7 billion to 65 billion parameters and thus make it much easier to compute. And in fact, that whole LLM can actually operate in a consumer class GPU. That also means smartphones, by the way. So your iPhone can now start to run the LLM and have the model nearby and you don't need to go off and link to the cloud to get it to work. So that means that the cost of running the AI is actually built into your smartphone or your laptop or your desktop PC, provided it's got some sort of GPU or inference chipping in there. And that is significant. I think that will, if that can, is true, let's say that Facebook is not always known for being distinctly honest about what it says about these things, uh, but it does suggest that this part of the market is iterating quickly, and I think you'll see it inside the enterprise much quicker than I previously thought if this sort of improvement can come into play this quickly. Yeah, I think we are at the start of a new arms race to commercialize and integrate AI and ML uh, capabilities into PC smartphones and business tools. I also worry that we're on the cusp of an unprecedented uptick in marketing BS hype and unintended consequences. Yeah, yeah, it is inevitable. It is indeed. People have got the hype. You know, once it gets the sort of mainstream hype like this, you're going to see companies doing something with it, not because they have to, but they because feel they, they have uh, to. feel like it's the fashion. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like, you know, yep. jelly babies. You know, remember those things? You know, or 
Legos or, you know, whatever it is that people do these days for yeah. fashionable things. Uh, back to acquisitions. Uh, HPE has announced it's buying Access Security for an undisclosed amount. Access Security positions itself in the secure service edge or SSE market. That means users connect to an Access Security location and their traffic runs through a set of security controls. They include zero trust network access, a cloud access security broker, and a secure web gateway. Uh, HPE says it's going to integrate Access Security with the Aruba Edge Connect SD-WAN, which will allow HPE to become fully buzzword compliant in the SASE market. <laughs> this is good. Uh, I really wanted to see HP be successful at this. I think Aruba's got um, tremendous opportunity to leverage off its Wi-Fi campus branch and then now in the data center to a lesser extent. But really that ability to get out there is something that I think they should be doing. And Access, of course, has been around for decades doing edge stuff. And I think it's great that they've managed to pick up something that's going to give them a CASB and a zero trust and a web filtering gateway as well. And that will definitely round out their platform um, although they've been developing it internally or using bits and pieces from third parties, I think I think we said at the time when they've been building it out that we had concerns that they weren't scaling fast enough and also that they were better off getting something that was built from the ground up in this space. I believe uh, Aruba Edge Connect came from an acquisition as well, right? Their, their SD-WAN play they bought from somebody, uh, Silverpeak. Uh, so Access Security launched in 2020. It raised $99.5 million in VC funding. Uh, so I think a significant bite for HPE to buy this, although they didn't say how much they're paying for it. Um, they must have paid a fair bit. I mean, if it's got 90, you know, this is a hot market. But it's not the price isn't stated, so it mustn't be material to the market. So uh, I think if you're a vendor and you've got SD-WAN and you want to stay competitive, you do need a cloud-delivered security story, and you can build it or buy it. And HPE has decided to buy it, which is what a lot of other folks do, and now puts HPE or Aruba in the mix with competitors like Palo Alto Networks, Fortinet, Cisco, and VMware. Uh, sticking with HPE, they also announced financial results for their Q1 of fiscal 2023. The company posted revenues of $7.8 billion, up 12% year over year, but the company lost half a billion dollars in the first quarter. Yeah, HPE turned in good results. Like most of the enterprise IT companies, we've seen Dell announce very good results. Broadcom blew the, <laughs> blew the wheels off. Uh, just about all of the enterprise IT companies that announced this week did very well. They came in above the market both in terms of revenue as well as um, total revenue and profits and often paying out. And, I mean, Dell Technologies just raised their dividend by 12%. That is not a market in recession, Drew. That is enterprise companies charging customers more and more for, not, for the same old stuff, right? <laughs> so it's quite something. Um, I would point to you that the reason that there's inflation is because these companies are charging more but nothing's costing them more. You don't do that. So HP got the, got on the end of that, and they've also announced a, a growth. Uh, analysts are a bit mixed. Some of them are saying it's great, uh, HP is executing, but I noticed that the share price did pop 6% this morning. So some people are taking it positively, um, but uh, they did do well. I mean, I, I wonder if <clears throat> marketing teams are now using chat GTP to write these press releases to bury the fact they lost half a billion dollars uh, in the first quarter, but... Um... You know, that the, <laughs> they say everything's great. Uh, they're going to raise the forecast for the yeah. full fiscal year 2023. They're predicting revenues yeah. to grow uh, 5 to 7% uh, for the full year. So I guess they see sunnier days ahead. Mm. Um, <clears throat> by business unit, the company's server business was the biggest moneymaker, took in $3.5 billion in revenue, up 14% year over year. Uh, in terms of year over year growth, the high performance compute biz mm. saw the biggest jump up 34% in that year over year growth. Yeah, I, I'm impressed with HP because I didn't think it was going to survive there for a while after it divested itself of all of its core business and so forth, and it's still doing okay. Yeah, moving so on. I think they're I think they're stuck with a lot of debt and weird financial instruments in the back end, 
from what happened during the split and when they acquired autonomy for ten billion and all that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. I suspect it's tougher than we think, or Could tougher be, than yeah. we know. Uh, Greg, you've got an update on some uh, APNIC elections. Yeah, um, props to the Register, to Simon Shawwood over at the Register for this article. And we talked about how there was a group, uh, a, a, an influence group or, or whatever, funded by a, uh, the Number Resource Society, which is in theory a Morocco-based internet governance advocacy group, um, who, however, have had links to very a large number of problems inside of Afrinic. And there's been some fairly unusual dealings over there where large numbers, and I'm talking very large numbers, of IP addresses given away to a private company uh, for very small fees and then been used to make significant profits. And there are court cases underway associated with this because the Afrinic itself doesn't have any processes for handling um, this type of activities which might be seen as Is this because of the limit so, on V4 addresses and they are becoming then more popular and more valuable? Is that yeah. the idea? Yeah, the suggestion was, um, it's been a while since I last looked at this, but the suggestion was that this person uh, got a group, an advocacy group of people installed into the Afrinic and then arranged to transfer a large number of IP addresses to a private company that those people were involved with and then were able to make a significant profit. Reselling them. Anyway, this group popped up at the, yeah. I'm not sure of the details and I may be wrong, so, you know, I just have to be careful about what I say, but... Um, the num- this group here formed uh, appeared up on the APNIC attempting to try and get onto the board. There was a, a lot of skullduggery happening, the sorts of things that you normally hear about HOAs in the USA. People get bribing to get votes and calling people up and saying, you should vote for this person. All these sorts of things that shouldn't happen for this type of thing. Uh, so it turns out that uh, they self-organized and four people were appointed to the board who are not seen as members of this resource group and in the APNIC will now take steps to prevent any more bold hijacks by this and, you know, that outside influence should not exist in this sort of form before. So um, we have seen this quite a bit in the internet lately where a lot of these non-profit groups or community-run groups are now open to being uh, takeover by well-funded pressure groups who then get in and change things in a certain way that always seems to benefit the people who paid for the pressure group. Uh, we've seen that quite a lot happening around the world. It seems to be like a, an arbitrage play by a certain group of business people. So glad to see that APNIC's okay, but I think we'll see more of this going forward because a lot of the internet governance is done by not quite volunteers, but by people with the best of intentions, but not necessarily the ability to play brutal politics in, in the rule. Yeah, uh, it, it's kind of fascinating that this is sort of like sort of the nerdiest, shadiest activity I could imagine. Like, hey, let's let's try to leverage IPB for... Uh, <laughs> Lack of IPv4 is and make some money off of this. That's, that's <laughs> it's a bit weird. But at the end of the day, these these organisations are in the middle of a lot of money. Those you know IP addresses, uh, and they also have a lot of data on who owns these addresses. So who, if you wanted to go out and buy and trade IPv4, these people have information on who owns it. So maybe could that's be what the the, the, the next plot in the latest heist movie to come out of Hollywood. Okay, our last story for the day. Password manager LastPass is back in the news for all the wrong reasons. The company says an attacker infiltrated an employee's home computer and got credentials that allowed it to access a LastPass data vault. Uh, in its incident report, LastPass details that all the alerts and the alarms it had had in place, but it uh, took them still some time to figure out the incident because it just sort of looked like regular employee behavior because the attacker was on that home employee's laptop. Yeah, and this is um, it's very concerning that LastPass, which has been hacked several times before, certainly twice in the last two years, and this is a third, has shown fairly bad behavior or poor behavior all the way around. Now, in this case, only four people were actually had access to this um, master file uh, where the corporate vault, which actually owns the root passwords, 
But in this case, they were able to track, because there's only four of them, they knew where to look. They attacked this person's Plex server, which is do they use for streaming video, got into that, used the passwords in the Plex server to then take over to get into their Mac, and were then able to monitor the keystrokes and then steal the um, the vault that actually contained the keys to the to the whole operation of LastPass, and then subsequently acquire their pass key as well, so that they're now in. Um, in the fallout from this, a lot of the security people are saying, like, it's just so obvious that companies like LastPass, who are doing cloud-hosted password hosting, are just such an obvious target that it's <clears throat> obviously unsafe. They're such a rich and high-value mm-hmm. target that corporate companies should just look at these things and say they're just such an obvious target, so vulnerable, not because they're good or bad or whatever, but there's just so much gold <laughs> inside there that they, that can be stolen. <laughs> Um, and, uh, so it's just amazing to consider that even after all of this last pass still wasn't able to keep it going, even though other cloud-based password companies have, I would say that last pass is basically done. Ooh, I would disagree. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't, uh, I, there are probably some. Keep in mind that all those password vaults that were stolen over the last two years are now able to be opened and cracked. Right. I mean, uh, I guess this will be the test of does security matter? Because if LastPass can make it through this, mm. then yeah, it doesn't. Uh, so, and I'm betting on yes, it doesn't matter. So uh, it just mm. depends on how many customers LastPass has that are aware of this and actually paying attention. Yeah, so. I, I I would think if you're in corporate IT and you're using LastPass at this point, you're making a serious mistake. And I would probably go and look at your insurance. But I'm also going to. But if you have one. the whole premise is that people are going after LastPass because it's so valuable. And if you just shift them to someone else, that's going to get attacked too. And who's to say it's not being attacked right now? I mean, that's the whole problem with these things like, you know, password management services that it's like that old Mm -hmm. gangster saying, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is, right? That's it's, it's a prime target. All of them are prime targets. So. But LastPass has proven in less than capable in protecting you consistently, not just once, not just twice, but more than three times in Mm -hmm. the last five Mm -hmm. months. That's a good point. Yeah. Mm. But so, you know, there's a difference between, oh, I got, you know, they, they blew but, up the bank. But the others that maybe haven't yet or we don't know about is it because they're good or because they're lucky? That's, uh, you know, you, you want you want to bet your passwords and on at it? At this point, you would have to say, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I think yeah, at this point I would have to say so. I think that LastPass, if it had only been taken down once by this, I'd go, yeah, I mm-hmm. you're right, Drew. Once is okay. But three, four, five times, mm, there's something else going on inside that company. All right, links in the show notes, including uh, LastPass's additional details on the TAC if you want to read it. That does wrap up uh, this episode. Greg, if folks want to find you online, where should they go? Uh, I'm still tweeting at, at Ethereal Mind. Uh, it's been most enjoyable. Um, I do still tweet out, although engagement is dropping away. But as always, you know, uh, don't for hesitate. If you've got something to say or you want to tell me that you don't like anything that I said, get on to packetpushes.net slash FU and let us know. I'm Drew Connery Murray. I'm on Twitter at Drew underscore CM, blogging at packetpushes. I'm also on Mastodon Social, also at uh, Drew underscore CM. So if you're there, let's let's hook up. Uh, Thank you for joining us for this episode of Network Break. If you like the show, please give us a like on Facebook, leave a recommendation or Apple Podcasts, or share it with your friends. As always, thanks for listening.